Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. So we are continuing our series on the letter to the seven churches out of Revelation. And uh, this week, I, I have kind of messed up the orders, but this week we come to this church of Ephesus. And the Bible says this, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. By the way, I read this, I don't know how many times, and I never noticed that it was written to an angel. Isn't that interesting? I know at the bottom he says that the church is here, but he addresses it to an angel. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Anybody want to guess who that might be? Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. By the way, if that was you, would you kind of brush over all that good stuff, and then when they say but, you'd be like, what? Right? Right? It doesn't matter that they just complimented you, right? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, the lampstand, by the way, is the witness and the testimony of the church. It, it would just go into kind of nothingness. Yet, this, I ha- this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, Jim Fenske came up to me after the service last night and goes, how come you didn't talk much about the Nicolaitans? And I go, we don't know anything about it. It's all conjecture. We got like less than a thimble full of information. You want me to make stuff up? Um, but I do, I said, I do find it fascinating that he tells them you've abandoned your first love, but then he compliments them and says, you hate that and I hate that too, right? And he says, he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here is this letter that John uh, received as part of a prophecy, really, and it's a revelation, does not have an S on it, the book of Revelation. Um, And if you go to like Mexico, they call it the apolixo, it's the apocalypse, that's the word, the Greek word for revelation. And, and And it's writing to different churches, and this is a church called Ephesus, And I think for us to get the most out of reading about the churches, we need to have ears. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been like in a service and the person is preaching and it goes right to your heart? And then you talk to somebody and they're like, what's for dinner? (laughs) Right? You, You know what I'm saying? And maybe you've been there too. Like you're reading the Bible and you're having personal time with the Lord and something jumps out at you and then... Two days later, you're like, did I even read this morning? Right? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes 
We have ears, and sometimes we don't seem to have ears, right? I was with parents on the Bible and bike, and sometimes parents go, do you hear me? <laughs> right? Are you listening? Right? Are you listening? And, and, and so I think it's important for us to be people who hear. And you know, when I think about our relationship with God, many times I think about a relationship between a man and a woman or a husband and wife and even business relationships. And... Um, I Googled something that I've noticed that happens in relationships. And uh, many times, a wife, and sorry, ladies, will repeat themselves over and over and over again, right? And many times, husbands will be like, uh, talk to the hand, right? They'll, they'll say, well, I heard it, and I agree that I'm a lazy slob, and now we should move on. How many times do you have to tell me? I'm like, no, I'm teasing. You know, it could be anything, right? And there's this repetition. So I Googled it, and you could find this reference like over and over and over again. Look at this. During arguments, wife repeats herself a lot. Is this borderline personality thing? You know what? If you don't understand your spouse and you can label them, it's really important, right? Because a good stigma licks a good dogma any day. And so you just stigmatize them, and then you don't have to deal with it. Um, you know what I found? I found that uh, I probably took me at least 15 years. Wouldn't you agree, Gretchen? I, 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 had, I had that same experience of the repetition. And then one day, let's give the Holy Spirit credit for this. This thought comes into my mind. Do what feels unnatural. Because I don't like conflict, you know, and so I turned and I walked into her, and I touched her on the shoulder, and she thought it was going to hit her. And, uh, <laughs> and no, she didn't. I'm teasing. I'm sorry. Um, and and I listened, and I repeated back what she was saying, and I empathized. I listened for feelings and emotions, and I and I like I even if it was pointed towards me, I can't even remember what the topic was. I listened, and guess what? She stopped repeating herself. Guys, it's a miracle. <laughs> you change, your wife will change, right? You know, and, and it works in business, too. You know, people just want to be heard. They want to be listened to. And I found that even if couples disagree, but they listen to each other, and they get each other, and they understand each other, and they empathize with each other, the problem many times is solved. They're like, well, we don't agree, but I know that he understands me. Or he says, I, we don't agree, but I know that she understands me, and there's... There's like, you can actually move on even if you don't agree. And what's the key? Listening. And I think Jesus is saying to this group of people, you're not hearing me. I want you to have ears to hear me. Let him who has ears hear me. And that should be our prayer every time we come to the scripture. And he begins again with the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. Uh, you got to understand, these people went through more persecution than we probably ever will in our life. This is Ephesus. Hey, if Broadview Heights, you know, a thousand years from now, 
it wouldn't look as good as that, right? No, I mean, the, the city was made of marble. And there was maybe 25,000 people who lived in the city. And, and there, there was uh, a temple to the god uh, Artemis or Diana, depending on what you want to say. And it was a fertility god. Notice, a lot of nursing could take place with that god, right? And, um, <clears throat> and so, so this is a, an established place. And yet, um, the church had been established by Paul. He left Priscilla and Aquila there to work on it, and, and Apollos helped them. And then he spent two years there, you know, growing this church and building them up in the faith. And, and you know, Paul would come into a, a city like this, and he'd set up on it by a shop or somewhere, and he'd preach the good news. And other teachers would do the same thing. It was common in that day. And, and yet, Paul's message threatened the local economy, right? I mean, they had this massive temple, and people made a living off this temple. And when he comes in and says, Jesus is Lord, you don't have to worship there, guess what? They lose money. They, they did not like that. They beat him up, right? They, did, they didn't like it. This church proclaiming Jesus is Lord in the midst of one of the biggest temples to the god, di goddess Diana or Artemis, it, it took persecution and difficulty and suffering, and they, they stood for the truth, and Jesus knows it, and he says, good job. You've held on to the truth in the midst of persecution, right? You stand for the truth. You know, I was thinking about something I read that Tim Keller wrote some years ago. You know, our, our culture has had kind of a, a movement, right? Years ago, you had um, probably 20% of the people are committed believers in Jesus. They love the truth. They hold on to what the Bible teaches, right, about sexuality, about marriage, right? It, they hold on to that. And then there used to be the big mushy middle who said, yeah, we agree with what the Bible teaches. Do you remember the Defense of Marriage Act, right? I mean, we, the big mushy middle said, yeah, we agree with what the Bible teaches. And then you had, you know, years ago, maybe 20% uh, that was like, no, you know, no, we don't. And they, they, they were on the uh, other end. And what's happened in our culture is the mushy middle has moved. And now they're over here. So we look like Amish. Like, we look weird. They're like, you believe that? And you say, that is an assertion to make me feel awkward. Do you have an argument? Right? Right? We, you, you, you believe that. You know, how? You're on the wrong side of history. Is that an argument? Or is that just something to make me feel awkward? Right? And, and so we're now in this place where we stand for, like the Ephesians, for truth and can be ridiculed for it and can be made fun. And it's nothing compared to what the Ephesians went through, right? They had true persecution by the Roman emperors and the Roman government, and we have awkwardness and stuff like that. Uh, but that's part of it. And then he goes, you, you can't bear with those who are evil, and you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. There were people back in the day who Paul refers to them as super apostles in Corinthians, and an apostle is a sent out one. You have like the 12 apostles, let's include Paul in that. And then you have 
Uh, other people who are sent out are also called apostles. And, and there were people that were self-appointed or appointed by some group or whatever, and they, they were apostles. And, and he's saying, you tested them and found them false. And, and if you've been around Christianity for a long time, you'll, you'll find that there are people who like start right. And you listen to their sermons and you listen to their podcasts. And then all of a sudden, they start writing books that, and you're going, that doesn't seem to make sense. And they start preaching and teaching, and you're like, wow, they've gone off the edge. And they go from maybe a good apostle to being a false apostle. And how do you know who is a false apostle? It's scripture. That's our canon, right? We look at the scripture, and we're like, that doesn't line up with the word of God. That doesn't line up with scripture, what they're saying. I, you, some of you are too young to remember a guy named Jim Jones, years ago. Jim Jones was, when he started, he, he preached the gospel. And then he moves everybody to Guyana, Africa, somewhere, and they end up Ghana, and they end up like all committing suicide, drinking poisonous Kool-Aid. Ah, a false apostle, but started somewhere maybe with the truth. And so these people, they were able to go take scripture like a ruler and go, nope, nope. You don't line up with the word of God. And Jesus commends them for it. And he commends us for it. You can't believe everything you hear or read or hear preach or even hear me say, if I say something wrong, check it by the word of God. I think it's critical. And so he commends them. But here's the thing. They seem to be a church community that stood for truth, but they lost love. Do you ever notice personality-wise, some people are truth people and some people are love people, right? You, some truth people like to tell you when you're wrong and they're right. They like to win arguments or just even argue for argument's sake, for the fun of it, right? Like, there are truth people that they don't care about love. I have truth and I'm going to tell the truth and they're going to speak the truth, but they, they're low on the love side. And then there's others who are more on the love side, but they're like, oh, I don't know if they'll hear me when I say that. If I, will they be offended, you know? And, and you're kind of shy on the truth side, and you err on the love side. But it's not love if you don't have truth, right? And is it really truth if you don't have love? And this is where Jesus goes with them. He goes, I got something against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Like, you're all about truth, but you're not connected with love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I read this, and one thing came to my mind. Any, any uh, leaders here, any managers, have you ever heard of the compliment sandwich? You know, compliment, criticism, compliment. Is it just me who's heard of the compliment sandwich? Because this may be the first recorded instance of the compliment sandwich, right? You've got, I know that you've endured patiently, but I have this against you, yet you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So it's like compliment, criticism, compliment. And, and you know, th this is basically a way to lead where if you just come at somebody with what they're doing wrong, it's hard. You're doing this right, you're doing this right, but you need to work on this. And this is how Jesus did it, the compliment sandwich. And it's clear that the Ephesians loved truth more than they loved God or one another. Their early love had grown cold and it had been replaced with zeal 
for orthodoxy. It's the idea of I am right and doing things right. And this can happen. Some of us have come to know Christ, like, and we were the younger brother. And we were far away, squandering our lives, right, in licentiousness. And then you come to know the Lord, and you become the older brother. And you're all about truth, looking down your nose at everybody else. Who are the most critical of smokers? Ex-smokers, right? They're like, oh, yeah. And you're like, dude, five years ago, you were that guy. Get off your high horse. Right, but that's what happens. I'm all about truth and not about love. And, and that can happen inside our hearts. But, but the Bible says that that is what we have to fight against. Look at this. You should know this. In the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. Isn't that it? Do you see that? It, it, Jesus said in Matthew, the love of many will grow cold. They'll be boastful and proud and scoffing at God and disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They, they will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, puffed up with pride. They love pleasure rather than God. They will, will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And then Jojo read this. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but... Have not love, I'm a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. It's just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, so if I can speak for God and fathom all kinds of mysteries, and if I have all kinds of knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give my body to hardship that I could boast but have not love, I am nothing. This is what happened in Ephesus. Somehow, they had become a church that during persecution and hard times, they held on to the truth, but it got disconnected from love. It got, somehow, it got disconnected from love. And what's his prescription if you're disconnected from love? He says, first, remember, therefore, the heights from which you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Remember, sometimes uh, talking with a couple in uh, like counseling, I'll ask them, how'd you fall in love? And that nostalgia kicks in and the memories of, of what took place. And although they may be in a tough time at the moment, that you can see sometimes the countenance changes because all of a sudden they're remembering and rehearsing the stuff that that brought them together, and the feelings come. So I'm pre prepping for the sermon, and I go, you remember our first kiss? And I wondered if she'd remember it. I'm like, it was like electric. She describes exactly, it wasn't a very romantic place. She describes exactly, we got engaged next to a dumpster. <clears throat> Sorry. We did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, because I'm very romantic. Truth hurts. Um, so I asked him, and, and, and we recounted that, and both of us were like, what? yes, remember the electricity, you know? And, and it, the memories, 
Memories stir the heart and stir the emotions, right? There's a Psalm, Psalm 143, I remember the days of old. I, I muse, I think about the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as in a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit faints. Do not hide your face from me, lest I become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning. So he's like, I'm remembering the things in this difficult time, in this hard time, and, and it's stirring up my emotions. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. You could take psychological studies for it. This is an article that, uh, a research article. At the first sight of love, relationship-defining memories and marital satisfaction across adulthood. Who would want to read that except me? <laughs> Um, I just pulled out a line from the, the abstract. It says, the quality of relationship-defining memories also predicted marital satisfaction. Oh, the quality of your good memories predicted relationship satisfaction. Relationship-defining memories that were more vivid and positive, electrifying kisses, emotionally intense, rehearsed and related to higher marital satisfaction. Age and gender differences were minimal. There you go. Yeah, it works. Like thinking about the good and the laughter and the different things that you have stirs our emotions. Jesus knows this. He's like, remember. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. We take communion. Remember me. And every time you do this, you proclaim my death until I come. What is he saying? I would like the dominant motive in your heart as you live your life to be. You did that for me? You did that for me? You, while I was an enemy, you died for me? You gave your life for me? Like, and then that, when you have that in your heart, when that is your experience, like, Grace and love flows through you, right? All our other relationships, many times, you're, you're nice because they're nice to you, and if they're not nice to you, you want to be mean to them. And when you base your actions on how other people treat you, it, it, it's always an up and down. But when you go, oh, God, I'm in a relationship with you, and I don't treat you so well. Like, I'm your bride, Lord, and you married a 900-pound gorilla, but you still love me? And that more than that, you gave your life for me. You bought me. Like, I deserve the cross. You took it. Like, when that's the dominant remembrance in your life, it changes you. It, 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 it works down deep in, into your life. When I was in sales in Pittsburgh, I would walk down the street, and there might be an attractive young lady. And I always got a kick out of watching heads turn, right? You know what I'm saying. And... and uh, and Jesus would say to us, I used to turn your head, but you don't turn your head for me any longer. Like you found me attractive, and you don't find me so attractive any longer. I'm not a head turner for you. And I think he would say, remember when you always turned your head for me. There's a lady, I was in the grocery store with a Christian shirt on. I, I forget what I'm wearing. She's like, nice shirt. Oh, thank you. You know, because that turned her head. The message of, of the cross turned her 
head. And I think Jesus is saying, remember when I turned your head and come back, come back to that. Repent. And repent, remembering has to do with our mind and repentance has to do with our mind. It's we, we start thinking differently. We, our actions change because our thoughts change. There's a, there's a difference in it. I've always liked what Tim Keller said about repentance. And I, I, I could do a whole sermon and have on repentance, but what I did is I printed out an article with very small type because it fits on a page um, that's back there and also at the Connection Center. Pick it up and read it. It's called All of Life is Repentance. And that was the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door. All of life is repentance. And the trouble with repentance is sometimes repentance is a religious repentance and not a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered repentance. And Keller will unpack this more, but the trouble is religious repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. It's selfish, right? And it's self-righteous. I think about this in terms of couples sometimes. Couples will be uptight, and there will be something wrong in the relationship, and, and one of the couples is like going, oh, I might lose this thing. I better get to work and make it better. But guess what they're motivated by? Fear. Now, I believe coming to know Christ can begin with fear, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And, and fear could be the beginning motive for change, but if it's the only motive for change, once the reason for fear is gone, the change stops. I'm not afraid anymore. So what do I have to do, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And, and gospel change be, is a love change. Gospel change would say, I want to find something better or more in this relationship than I had before. Gospel change is that type of repentance that taps into the joy of the union with Christ. I think about uh, David. I quoted some of Psalm 53, I think it is, um, when he says, have mercy on me, O God. And I sang this like every Sunday in the Lutheran church growing up, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And repentance is saying, Lord, I want to tap into the joy of the union with Christ. I want to weaken my need for anything that's contrary to your heart. Read the article. It'll, it'll go more deeply. So I remember being with somebody, not anybody here, but somebody, and they were talking to me about their struggles and their sin. And they had one particular sin that was like dogging them. And I asked them this question, how can you work the gospel into your heart in such a way it'll change your action? Like right now, you love this more than you love Jesus, right? The Ephesians love being right more than they love loving and caring for God and for others. You love this. So how do you work the gospel into your heart so it'll affect your actions. I don't know that I could totally answer that for them. They needed to answer it, but somehow they needed to meditate on what Christ did for them. Not so get it out of the head and into the heart so that they start weeping. Oh, my sin put you on the cross and I'm treating you horribly. 
and somehow to allow that to impact their actions. And this is what the Ephesians needed to do also. Because once you get the gospel into your heart, your works change. Your actions change. Do those things that you did at first. Allow the works to change your actions. He, he says, uh, Grant Osborne says this, these works are not just good works, but they're acts of love towards God and one another that are characterized by the early years of the church. Their battle against heretics could certainly be construed as good works, but because they were not accompanied by love, it was insufficient. In short, here you go, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is false religion. Why don't you say that to somebody today, right? Or what did, they're like, what did he just say? So orthodox, right? You go to the orthodentist to straighten your teeth. When, you have, when you're orthodox, that means you have like good theology. It comes from two words, straight and glory. So you have good teaching, good thinking, good theology. Now, orthopraxy, straight practice, right? So if your good gospel teaching doesn't live to lead to good gospel living, then it's false religion. It's like when I was in uh, college on the wrestling team. There were two Christians on the team. One I call Bloke. And, uh, and uh, so we, uh, we were down in Florida, and the whole team went to an establishment that I did not feel comfortable going to that establishment because of what took place there. And, um, but Bloke was right there yucking it up with his dollars. You know what I mean? And, um, and so... Uh, on the way back, we're traveling back to college. They go, Doug, we don't want what you have. We want what Bloke has. Bloke talks all about Jesus, but he lives his life just as he wants, right? And this is what he's talking about. Orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy or not having orthopraxy. And the Lord looks at them and says, I don't like it. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Right? And I do believe that what we love, we serve, either for ruin or for restoration. Like you can say you love Jesus all you want, but how you spend your time and your money, it, it, that, that's going to be it, right? And we know that you could come to church, but outside of church, what you love will be seen. It's just the way we're wired. And when I think about this, the one who conquers, I will grant the tree to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember the tree of life? Do you remember that in the, in the Bible that they never ate from it? And then they, they kick Adam and Eve out. By the way, he had made clothes for them. That's why I put the little blocks on them. <laughs> he had made clothes for them when he kicked them out. So... Um, so he makes clothes for them, and he, he kicks them out, and then it says he put this angel with this flaming sword there, right? And, and what we love will either ruin us or restore us. And Jesus comes along and says, I love you so much. I will walk into that flaming sword. I'll take your place. I will die by walking into that flaming sword so that you can eat of the tree of life that is in paradise. And the tree of life is the cross. 
And Jesus walked into it for us so we could have that fellowship with him. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love because you first loved us. And the more we can get a picture of a God who would say, yep, you'll never be able to walk into that sword. But I took the death that you deserved. Now you get that into your heart. Now you give it to your wife and you give it to your kids and you give it to your boss or your coworkers or those who work for you. Lord, I pray that we could be people who give your love and your grace out. And Father, we admit in our humanness, we, we, we're, we don't have the power. We are not potent. But with you, all things are possible. So pour your love through community of hope and through your church around the world. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.